Good morning. Gospel reading this morning is from Mark chapter 4, verses 26 to 34. He also said, the kingdom of God, as if someone would scatter seed on the ground and would sleep and rise night and day, and the seed would sprout and grow. He does not know how. The earth produces of itself, first the stalk, then the head, and then the full grain in the head. But when the grain is ripe, at least he goes in with his sickle, because the harvest has come. He also said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable will we use for it? It is like a mustard seed which when sown upon the ground is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes the greatest of all shrubs and puts forth large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them except in parables but he explained everything in private to his disciples. Amen. Our second reading today, as I alluded to in the children's sermon, is a psalm of praise and thanksgiving. It is Psalm 92. And I'll begin, before I begin with the first verse, I'll begin with those little words that you will see if you read it in your own Bibles. A psalm, a song for the Sabbath day. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp and the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The dullard cannot know, the stupid cannot understand this. Though the wicked sprout like grass, and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For your enemies, O Lord, for your enemies shall perish, all evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox, you have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies, my ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. In old age, they still produce fruit. They are always green and full of sap, showing that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. This, too, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Oh God, we give you thanks for all good things, especially for the gift of your word and the gift of your spirit. 
And then we pray that by your Spirit, through these human words, we might hear your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I have a confession to make. There are obviously a lot of things I don't understand, but one of them is those preachers who preach a prosperity gospel. Meaning that is that if you have enough faith or you pray a certain prayer or in a certain way, God will bless you, particularly financially. It's a gospel. The prosperity gospel is popular in certain parts of the North American church, some of whom you can see on TV. It's also popular in some parts of the church worldwide, as was described in the best-selling novel Americana by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, who's from Nigeria, has lived both in Nigeria and America, including Philadelphia. I remember reading several years ago about one pastor of such a congregation who felt great pressure to be driving either a new Mercedes or Lexus. Otherwise, he might lose members because clearly he would not have been blessed. In that case, I can only imagine what driving a 2010 Prius would do for the membership roles. <laughs> While I certainly understand the appeal of such financial prosperity claims, especially for those who are struggling financially, I wonder how you hold on to such claims when you look around. As the psalmist declares here, it often seems like it is the wicked who are prospering. You know, there is a mythology that wealth is always the product of talent and hard work and virtue, and it can be, but sometimes it can also be more a sign of heredity and luck and even unscrupulousness, or of a society that values a heck of a lot more if you're talented in football or in acting than it does if you're especially talented in teaching children. The other question I have for proponents of the prosperity gospel is, what do you do with that? What do you do with a cause? I mean, after all, we understand that a perfectly innocent man, the very Son of God, was crucified on the cross, tried and executed by the authorities. And while he was raised from the dead, he truly did suffer and die, we proclaim. And he certainly was no wealthy man during his life, as he underscored when he said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but as for the Son of Man, he has no place to lay his head. Let's make no mistake about it. God does bless those who are faithful, but is more in the ways of the fruits of the Spirit like joy and peace or love and gentleness rather than the form of a prospering business or a bulging bank account. And the way that God blesses us is often on the inside in the form of renewed strength and vitality rather than on the outside in the form of changed circumstances. As that same cross symbolizes, it is often in adverse circumstances when we most clearly know the power and presence of our surprising God. For example, Paul could write to the Corinthians when his health was failing that we do not lose heart even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. 
Here in Psalm 92, the psalmist describes two paths, one that moves away from God and one that moves towards God. While those who turn away from God may prosper, they are like grass, the psalmist declares, meaning they flourish today, but they will be cut down tomorrow. Those who turn to God, the righteous, on the other hand, are like palm trees or cedars in Lebanon. Now picture, as you hear that, picture these tall, strong, green trees in a brown and arid climate like that of ancient Palestine. Or in my favorite image, the psalmist describes the righteous as being like trees that even in old age still produce fruit. They are always green and full of sap. Even in old age still producing fruit, always green and producing and full of sap, Surely that is a much better blessing than a Mercedes in the garage or a bulging bank account. What is the path then to follow to receive that blessing towards living a good and fruitful life even when our outer circumstances are changing or are challenging or are difficult? The answer, perhaps, lies in Psalm 92's purpose and structure. As I read to you, before I read the psalm, the, what's called the superscription, the description of what this psalm was used for, the words in smaller print says that it was a song for the Sabbath day. And we know that Psalm 92 was used in early Jewish worship as a Sabbath psalm. It is a psalm of thanksgiving and praise that begins by focusing on God. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. Musical instruments are enlisted to give thanksgiving and praise, although in this case, lute and harp and lyre. And then the psalmist declares the reason for the thanksgiving and praise. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. Why do we worship God? Why are you here today when there's so many other ways you could be spending your time and in your energy on a day such as this? When I've asked those questions of others, the answers I often hear about the impact of worship that people experience. For example, people talk about being refreshed or revived or inspired, or they may talk about what they learn or felt. And certainly that is what you would hope for if you were a pre preacher or worship leader. And it is good that if worship has an impact on us. But what the psalmist reminds us is that they are the byproducts of worship and not the purpose itself. Because worship, properly understood, according to the psalmist, is all about God. Worship focuses on God, and like Psalm 92, begins and ends with God. What is worship? One pastoral theologian describes it this way, at its most profound, worship is nothing but a deliberate and repeated activity in which we're called to turn away from self and turn toward God. 
Worship is nothing less than an attempt to set the order of creation aright. The worshiper surrenders his pretense to be a god. All turn in adoration to the one who is God. All turn in adoration. There are no spectators here, as the children's sermon tried to illustrate. While it may seem that those of us up here are on stage and you are in the audience, the truth is is that the only audience is God. And that we are all here to offer our worship to God. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High. When we focus on God, we cannot help but become aware of how much we have already been given. And when we take the time to reflect, we can think about the reasons we have to give thanks to God. That's why the novelist John Cheever, near the end of A Hard Life, described his reason for going to worship. If I didn't, I wouldn't know what to do with my gratitude. It is good to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. When we pay attention to God, we cannot also help but become aware of God's goodness, God's faithfulness, and God's love. The Hebrew words in this psalm can be translated either in the past tense, that is what God has done, or, because this is the way Hebrew is, in the future tense, about what God will do. And in fact, what happens is that when we are reminded of what God has done, it can give us greater confidence in what God will do. That as we face an uncertain future, we can have confidence that we are in the hands of God and that those are very strong and capable hands. Worship is all about God and not about ourselves, but that doesn't mean that being a part of worship doesn't have an impact on us. That's because normally, ordinarily, we tend, we human beings, tend to become more like the one or the thing we worship. It's not automatic, but hopefully as we spend time in worship, we will indeed grow to become more like the one we worship. As the Old Testament scholar Ellen Davis has written, when we praise God, we tend to see the world as God does. The psalms of praise, like this psalm, are powerful bearers of an ecological vision. Because when we praise God, when we consider the marvels and wonders of God's creation, how can we not try to be good stewards of that creation that God has given us? And when we focus on God and when we consider God's creation of human beings and God's care for human creation, how can we not look at other human beings the way God does? As God's children, made in the image of God, part of the world for whom Jesus Christ came to save. How can we look at others then through prejudiced eyes? How can we divide the world between them and us when we're all made in the image of God and God considers every single person worth dying for? How can we not follow God's pattern 
the psalmist talks about here, of maintaining the rights of the weak and securing the well-being of every creature. What did you get out of worship? I don't know how many times that question has been asked, as it was asked by me growing up in my Sunday luncheons. I can tell you, we didn't ask it of our kids. Didn't want to hear the answer. But I know this, that when we ask that question, there are two things that we may be overlooking. One is, sometimes what happens in worship is not what we get. Sometimes what happens in worship is what we're able to leave. As someone has written, another preacher, what burden did we drop at the foot of the cross that day in worship? What gnawing anger and resentment are we going to go home without because we left it behind? What lie that others speak out there will we no longer believe because we've been here? The other issue that this Sunday luncheon question overlooks is that the most important changes can only be seen over a very long time. One hour later, there may not be much. Indeed, that is probably the best way to measure the impact of worship on us, not by the feelings we have an hour later, but by the transformation that takes place in our lives over time. This psalm, Psalm 92, was read weekly. And we are called to worship regularly and often because we constantly need to refocus on God and recenter our lives around God's priorities. We regularly need to be reminded that we are not God. And that God is God and that this God is a good God. A good God of steadfast love and faithfulness who will be there in our future no matter what may happen. In a recent article, Robert Roberts, I can't imagine a parent doing that to a child, an ethicist at Baylor and his wife, Elizabeth, who is a social worker who spent most of her career working in, with the aging in continuing care communities and nursing homes, asked these questions. Why are some people better able to handle the challenges of aging than others? What quality seem to help people better adjust to difficult circumstances. Don't you find yourself asking that at times? They found two qualities in common among those who seem to handle better these difficult transitions near the end of life. Gratitude and generosity. Gratitude makes a person mindful of all our blessing and how much more we have received than we deserve. Gratitude is more than positive thinking because it helps us to focus on the giver behind the gift. And generosity is the other side of gratitude. As the Roberts write, if gratitude is a disposition to receive graciously, generosity is the disposition to give graciously. Both of these virtues are interpersonal and involve the acknowledgement of independence. And what is aging but a recognition of interdependence? If you think that you're not entitled to what you have, but that it comes by grace from the hands of others, they write, it is not likely that you will cling to it tightly and use it only for yourself. 
Gratitude and generosities are practices that remind us that we are blessed to be a blessing to others. Gratitude and generosity prepare us to move on freely and gladly to whatever God has in store for us. By their fruits you shall know them. The executive director of a nonprofit ministry in Texas described in his monthly newsletter column two people he knew. Perhaps you've known people like both of them. One is a woman on our board of directors, he writes, who is such a thankful child of God. She has lived in poverty most of her life. She is living with cancer and goes three times a week for grueling kidney dialysis. She she has plenty of reasons to hold her fist up to God and say, why me, God? But she doesn't. She just thanks him each day for another day of life to bless others until he calls her home. Across town, there's a man whom I know and met with on several occasions. He's a nice man who has amassed a good fortune. But his heart is thankless. He is angry at God and others for the setbacks he has experienced in life. He worked so hard to be happy and now lives a miserable existence. How can we be like those described in Psalm 92, that even in old age still produce fruit and are always green and full of sap? no matter how dependent on others we are. Perhaps the answer then is found at the beginning of Psalm 92. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. This is why we are here today and why we keep coming back to worship this good God. Thanks be to God. Amen. As participants in worship, let us stand and proclaim our faith with the words of Paul from Romans 8. You'll find them in the bulletin in the affirmation of faith. We believe there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we know that in everything God works for good with those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. We are sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.